Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he brought him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word. So our reading this evening is uh, one of the better-known texts of the New Testament. Of course, it's the Good Samaritan. Um, Almost anyone can recognize that title, and many, if not most, have a general sense of what it might mean, right? Um, You you would help those in need is maybe a theme of the Good Samaritan. Uh, There are many hospitals uh, named after the Good Samaritan. Um, There's an RV park, Good Sam, that's uh, once was named after the Good Samaritan. Uh, It's come to be synonymous with acts of kindness. Um, There was an accident the other day. I was with uh, one of my coworkers from out of town, and we were driving under the the Congress Street Bridge, and a vehicle comes by, somebody pulls out, T-bone accident, and we were trying to pull over, but by the time we were pulled over, another guy behind us had already jumped out, was already there, and actually there was already a police officer. It was really pretty incredible. Um, but that guy who jumped out, right, is the epitome of what we would call a good Samaritan. Like here he, he is in the middle of his day and he's just like, nope, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump out and make sure these people are okay. We have good Samaritan laws, um, even in Arizona, which protect people from the weight of other laws when they're trying to help somebody, which means if somebody, if you're with somebody who's overdosing and you've been using drugs as well, you don't need to worry about calling uh, 911 because of the Good Samaritan law. You won't get in trouble for your crime because you're helping to save somebody else's life. Um, or if you're saving the life of a child or a pet inside a vehicle, you won't be charged with breaking and entering when you break the window. Those are Good Samaritan laws. So this is something that this idea of the Good Samaritan that Jesus taught has leaked all the way in, right, to our into our culture and our law code here in our state. But of course, as we read this parable of Jesus, we can see it's more um, than just a principle that, you know, classifies helpful people or protects them. There's, There's more to it. It's a core teaching about life and faith, according to Jesus, because, and why do we know that? Um, Because the expert of the law didn't say, you know, how do I make sure I can save somebody from their car and not get arrested? 
the lawyer who, who spoke with Jesus asked, how do I inherit eternal life? I mean, that's, that's a huge existential question that Jesus was asked that led to him telling this story. And then, of course, um, when, when prompted by Jesus, he was able to articulate what God requires of people, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's an excellent answer. That summarizes the entire of the Old Testament law um, under the, its two major headings. And Jesus looked at this man and said, great, um, do that and you will live. And then he hit a little mental hang-up and he asked his, his secondary question, who is my neighbor? And that's where he gets challenged by Jesus. A, a bit of a spoiler, um, Jesus here points him to an almost impossible scenario that really points us to Jesus himself. The heroine of this story is one that he wouldn't have trusted as a neighbor, um, doing something that felt unreasonably merciful and extremely costly. Uh, the Samaritan was a Jewish person who had strayed in the eyes of, the, of your more establishment Jewish person of the day. Um, have you ever noticed that it's far easier to love people who seem distant from you, say, in, a, in another country where it seems like the whole system is broken um, or that political movement across the globe um, than it is to love, say, a difficult family member or your next-door neighbor who's just really obnoxious, right? It's a lot easier to love somebody who's far more distant. And the Samaritan to the Jewish person was extremely close. They were related. They actually came from the same lineage. Um, then they had diverged. They had a, a difference of opinion about where the Temple Mount was and where the Ark of the Covenant had been held. Um, and at this point, they lived in separate communities. They were politically different. Um, and they were just really embarrassed of one another, and they couldn't stand each other. Um, they didn't want to be in community with each other. And, um, and even to this day, you have to convert uh, back and forth between being a Samaritan and Jewish. Likely, this lawyer who asked the question would have had a, an easy time loving the neighbor who was very distant from him, but the Samaritan would have been hard for him to love. Jesus didn't call him to love the Samaritan, he made the Samaritan the hero of the story, which is a, a shocking move. He says, compare yourself to a Samaritan who acts this way, be like him. And that was a difficult thing for that guy to hear. On top of that, on top of that difficulty, which clearly was getting at the root of his who is my neighbor question, right? It was challenging him deeply on who his neighbor was, it was, you know, in essence saying, why don't you consider the one you really don't want it to be? But on top of that, the level of mercy given was absolutely shocking. Um, he has compassion on him. That's the word. And it's a strong word for, for suffering alongside. So, that, you know, the compassion, passion means to suffer, to suffer alongside. Um, he binds his wounds. He risks his own cleanliness and underneath uh, their law code. He expends his oil and his wine in the process to clean him up. He delays his own journey by several days. He spends two days' wages on the first night at the inn. And then he says, now I'm leaving and I'll incur whatever cost it takes upon my return, which means it takes two days' wages for one night. 
and he was probably going to be gone for some time. I mean, he's going to lose a, a huge amount of money, and he's going to come back and re-engage this situation again and see what needs arise after that. This is an extremely costly endeavor. And Jesus asks, okay, in my story, who proved to be a neighbor? Was it the ones that passed by? Was it the ones that walked by? Of course not. The answer clearly for this smart young man was the one who showed mercy and at great cost. And Jesus says, great, go and do that and you'll have eternal life. Now that's a heavy and high call. At first glance, we might go, well, okay, I guess that's what we do. But truthfully, um, can we really even, like, what if you lived your life this way? I mean, just, just think about that. For Like, if you went to the people you absolutely hated, you spent two days' wages on them per day, um, you, that, it doesn't add up. Like, you run out of resources and time, and it's... It's nearly impossible. And not only did Jesus say this to this guy, at, at another time he said, guess who else I want you to love? You're like, your enemies. Love them too. This eternal life inheriting is very difficult, it turns out, to do. And of course, when you get into the life of Jesus, you learn some things that Jesus will go on to bear a criminal's death. He'll pour wine out on his table and offer it as his own blood to his people. He'll accept a cost that we can't fathom to give us mercy. And he'll promise that he's going to return for us and complete our redemption. Ultimately, what we learn when you take the parable, and a parable is a, a story that teaches a principle. When, when you take what it requires and couple it with the finished work of Jesus, you have a situation in which Jesus actually lives up to the standards of the parable. And when he calls you to go and do likewise, he says, go and do likewise because I have done, as Father Stu says in the Netflix special, if you haven't watched it yet, I have done the heavy lifting, okay? We learn our lives should follow the pattern of a merciful God and we're enabled by the fact that we are recipients of mercy, is what this means. So that's, that's the principle of it. And this principle isn't isolated to this parable. Um, here's another example. Paul in Ephesians 4, 22 to 32 is teaching people the basics of Christian living. He says things like, put off your old self, belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirits of your mind and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's a new self that's patterned after God's nature. Then he says, therefore, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth to your neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Only such is good for building up that fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be kept away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How are you doing on this list? Right? 
how, why, as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ gave you. And if you go back and look at all those things, as God in Christ, he tells you to share with one another. As God in Christ shared, he tells you to build up one another. As God in Christ has built up, he tells you to give grace to one another. As God in Christ gave grace, these are all things that Jesus did first and for us. We pattern after Jesus and we're actually enabled because we're receiving these things from Jesus. Even kindness as opposed to anger, tenderness as opposed to corrupting talk, forgiveness as opposed to bitterness, and slander is patterned after what God did in Jesus in forgiving us. So our series is a serving community, and tonight my aim is to show that this simply means we are to pattern ourselves after Christ because he has done these things for us. We serve because we have been and are being served by Jesus. That is the principle. Now, I want to show us a couple of imbalances here that I think are important, and and they are action and cost that come out of this principle that we serve because we have been served and are being served. There's an imbalance toward action and an imbalance toward cost, and I think we need to see these as followers of Jesus because they are the pattern, the imbalance toward action. Um, Something we observe in both the Good Samaritan and Ephesians 4 is that all of these things that were listed, I just read that long list in Ephesians and everything in the Good Samaritan, they're all actions done with absolutely no explanation. There's no explanation. They're just done. The Good Samaritan doesn't explain why he did what he did. He just does it. In Ephesians, all of these things are given and there's no like, and make sure you give them the flyer to Mission Church afterwards so they know where to find you. They're just done, all of them. Now, I have to put this on the table. I'm, I'm glad I was here for Ray's sermon because I'm about to like sound like I'm contradicting Ray from last week. Because um, Ray mentioned that in our serving, it would be pointless if we didn't point to Jesus. And ultimately, I do agree I'm for speaking the gospel. I enjoy speaking about the gospel. We encourage speaking about the gospel. We, every time you come here for church, I hope you hear the message of Jesus embedded in every single sermon, every time we gather to the table. Um, I believe the Christian church has always and explicitly explained the specifics of Jesus, especially in, in baptism and the Lord's Supper and in our you know, examining of the word. And we're called as people who follow Jesus to be ready to give an account for the hope that we have. So I agree with Ray, okay? But, but we will do far more action than speaking. We will, and we must. And here's what I mean. It's just natural. My actions on any given day will overwhelm my words exponentially. And I talk a lot. All right. But even me, and imagine you quiet people, your actions are going to utterly overwhelm your words. Um, I will by nature do far more than I explain. This is just the way life works. There is a false sense that there is like a sacred life and a secular life, or I do my 
things in which I engage my faith, and then I do things that are just neutral. That is not true. That's not how it works. Everything that we do is living out of our faith, and usually we will not have the opportunity to explain it. You don't go around every day going, hey, I didn't honk at you because I'm forgiving because Christ forgave me, so that's why I am mad, but I didn't express it, you know, driving on. You're not going to explain everything you do. It's just, you just won't. And we must do more than we speak because our words need um, to account for the hope that's exhibited in our actions according to the scriptures. Like, be ready to give an account for the hope that you have. That means that without having hope, the, action, the, the words are kind of useless. Without actions, we would be justly called hypocrites. Hypocrites are like speech actors. Have you ever seen the commercial where you're like, I don't think this really like thin, attractive dude eats fruity pebbles all the time. Like he's eating them in the commercial, right? He's there, he's like, wow, I love fruity pebbles. You're like, I don't think you do. I think you were hired to say that. Maybe Angel does. I don't know. But I, th I think you're a speech actor. I think you act like you love Fruity Pebbles, and then you go eat, you know, hummus. I think that's the truth. And that's, I think, what people will see. Like, if our, if our words are coming out, but our actions show something else, they're going to they're gonna go, you're, you're kind of a hypocrite. Isn't that how it works, right? Now, we're not just justified by other people's appraisals of us. You will, there will be you will do things that you feel very deeply convicted about and nobody will notice. And there will be things that you've really felt like you shouldn't do that people think you should do and you will hear criticisms. That's just life. But at the end of the day, our faith also needs to be exhibited within our actions. We should be able to see a connection and others should be able to see a connection between the lives that we live and the faith that we have. So the Good Samaritan loves God and loves his neighbor, how? Through a series of servant-like and sacrificial actions. <clears throat> Paul teaches the, Ephesians believe, the Ephesian believers to live their faith out by a series of actions, by forgiving, by being kind, by being tender, by renouncing falsehood, right? Now imagine, and it's not hard to imagine, right? We're in election time. Imagine trying to be a witness to a God of mercy, truth, and love while also insulting other people and lying, like at the same time. Your words to observers become like meaningless noise. We hear in the scriptures that without love, our words are like clanging cymbals, just like noise banging that drives everyone insane. And worse than noise, sadly, our words about prayer or Jesus can begin to associate God with evil, the evils of injustice or drawing people into temptations. And there's a word for that in the Bible, and that is blasphemy. And you don't want to do that. That's to call good evil or to call evil good. And it is not of God's spirit. And when people see that, which they do in our world, in our day, in our culture, they justifiably are repulsed by this. It's reasonable. 
So why do we do these things? I'm talking to us as the Christians in the room at the moment. Why do we and our, our friends and family, why do we slip into these things if they're so antithetical to God's spirit? And here's why, I think. Because the temptation to use these things, the tools that, that the enemy puts in our hand feel far more expedient and, and they feel far more powerful at the time. Like, have you ever noticed when, when you're, there's a truth you should tell that feels very painful and there's a lie you could tell that feels very easy? The lie feels like a very expedient tool to use right now to get out of this situation, Right? What about like there's forgiveness that you might be called to offer, but that forgiveness feels like deeply costly. Like if I forgive this person, I can't hold this over their head. If I say I forgive you, I can't bring this up ever again. That feels like scary, but, but a grudge feels powerful. I can hold this over your head. If I, if I hold on to this and you do this again, I can hold this over you and say, no, 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 no. Remember? It feels more effective, more powerful than forgiveness. Anger feels more powerful than kindness. You know, a, a gentle answer might turn away wrath, says the, the Bible, but, but anger makes people turn away in fear. Kindness doesn't feel very powerful Anger can feel more expedient. But as Christians, we have to think about this. Did my heart warm to the God of my salvation when I heard his expressions of anger toward me? When God lied to me, did I think that's the God I want to worship? Um, When God held guilt over my head, did I think to myself, yeah, that's true. I should follow him. And when God shamed me, did I feel my heart rise within me and say, I want to give him my heart? No. None of those sentences work, right? For, for anyone who's tasted of the gospel, who's tasted the good news of Jesus, that's not how salvation comes. That's not how it happens. Maybe, maybe godly discipline, maybe God's response to abuse, but not salvation, not the, not the way that we've come to him. God approaches us, it says in Romans 2, in kindness, he changes us, leads us to repentance using kindness. God tells us true things. They might be hard, but they're loving, and we learn to trust him because the truths, even though they're difficult to deliver to us and complex and maybe offend us, they prove trustworthy. He lays down his life, the Bible says, because he's a good shepherd. A good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. He doesn't just destroy their enemies. He lays his life down first. This is how we were brought near. It must be a pattern to which we conform our lives. And then when we do speak and give an account for our hope, it's like a puzzle piece that fits. People will look at the whole picture of our lives and go, what's the missing element? How does this work? And then it's like, oh, They believe in Jesus. That's the wrong one, but I like it. The other one. There we go. Okay. So, so, so imagine for a second, like I couldn't, I looked up, I just want to let you know for this image. I, every once in a while you Google things. I looked up evil puzzle. Don't do it. It's just, just a bunch of weird stuff and (laughs) it wasn't good. Wasn't that bad, but it wasn't good. 
Uh, so don't, don't Google evil puzzle. You'll, I mean, just a bunch of like weird warlocks and stuff. But, um, but imagine a life that's like this puzzle where everything you see is like, is like chaos. Like the idea is like, it's, it's chaos, it's lies, it's darkness, it's confusion. And then that person explains their life by telling you, I love God. And you go, oh, oh. I've told, I've told you all a story many times here at this church about a guy I met at the Raging Sage and I was reading my Bible, preparing a sermon. I was actually getting ready for church and he gave me one of those like glares and he was like, Bible, huh? And I looked at it, I was like, it was, a, it was one of those moments where I was like, I take it you're not a fan, <laughs> you know? And he, he, and he tells me this story about his sister and he, and he said, basically he said, my sister is the most horrible person in our family. She, always, she blames everybody for everything. You can never hold her accountable. And then she became a Christian. And it got worse. Because now, every time you bring something up, it's, well, Jesus died for my sins, so nobody can tell me what to do. And you could just tell he was like, ugh, right? He's looking at this life that's like, it's chaos, it's hurt, it's you know not taking responsibility. And then the missing puzzle piece is, Jesus died for my sins, and it's like, well, then Jesus is the worst, right? That, that's the conclusion I would come to. So then now you can put my lighthouse up there. I couldn't find a great, you know, actually this one's just okay as well. But, but then what if, what if the puzzle piece is like, what if the puzzle is like intriguing? What if it's something where it's a life where people are like, oh, like, it doesn't have to be perfect, but what about like they admit their faults? Or like they, they're actually like really helpful to me in ways I don't understand. And there's this, and there's something you don't quite know. And the person says, well, look, I, I believe in Jesus. So Tim Keller has a story of a lady at his church who, who came and was asking him some questions. And he'd asked, why are you, so why are you here? And she said she'd gotten in, in huge trouble at work. She'd done some fireable offense and her boss had said, you know what? Um, I'm going to take the blame for that. You, you stay on. And she goes, why? Like, why would you take the blame for a fireable offense? And he goes, well, I'm not going to get fired. I'm, I'm in a position where I'll get in trouble, but I won't get fired. You'd get fired, so I'll take it. And she's like, excuse me? Why would you get in trouble? And she had to, like, pester him. And she said, finally, almost like in a frustrated tone, he goes, look, I'm a Christian, okay? Like, I, my issues were put upon Jesus, and that's, how, that's why I was saved. So how can I not do that for other people? And she said, where do you go to church? And she went to church for her first time. See, compelling, something compelling. It doesn't have to be like, wow, perfect. I mean, this guy was even hesitant to put it out there. But then when the puzzle piece locked in, it's like, oh, okay. That's where our explanations and our words fit in amongst our actions. Most of your life will be actions. It just will. That is naturally the case. And when your words click in, it should make sense of your life. Uh, Bono of U2 was recently interviewed by Mike Cosper for Christianity Today, and he was talking about how um, Billy Graham back in the day was going to pray over him and his son Franklin picked him up, and on the drive he said, why don't you do Christian songs? He asked, he asked Bono why he doesn't do Christian songs. And Bono said, 
I do. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Like, none of them, you can't tell. And Bono said, look, look out at the sky, look at the hills. They don't have a sign on them. They just praise the Lord. And that's what I do. And interestingly, the article actually went into comparing Bono with a lot of Christian musicians who are always explaining their faith. And and they showed how many of them had ended up renouncing it or being caught in things. And Bono, who's always been kind of like under construction, I mean, his son, he has a song about Bloody Sunday when the, you know, the Brit, the, I mean, this is in Ireland when the, the Catholics and the Protestants fought with each other. He did a whole song about that. It's not encouraging. He's always been grappling with faith, but as it turns out, he's held on to his faith throughout the years, and his songs tend to bring people encouragement. You can see stadiums full of people singing the 40th Psalm um, along with him. It's actually pretty incredible stuff. And he's not ashamed of the gospel because he's willing to be interviewed by Christianity Today, right, when they ask. I think he might be onto something. Maybe we don't need to go out, you know, with the explicit words all the time. We go out with the consistent life, and then our words finish the puzzle and clear it up. We will act far more than we speak because that's natural. If you have, you have kids, you have coworkers, co-hobbyists, you live in their, in their presence far more than you'll ever articulate the, the specifics of the gospel to them, right? You do. That's the same for all relationships. They create the scene for which that puzzle piece of explanation can fit. And that puzzle piece, though, is necessary. There's a necessary imbalance of actions over words. So in our lives, we must seek to pattern our lives after Jesus. It undergirds the faith we hold and the words we say. It creates the compelling scene into which our confession of faith fits and functions effectively. And then we must speak. Peter says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason, the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. The assumption is your life will elicit such questions. And so my question for us is, do our lives elicit such questions? What questions would someone have when they observe my daily life? So that's the first imbalance. There should be more action than words. Um, and then a serving community, um, a serving community is known by its servanthood, and that servanthood is costly. That's imbalance number two, is cost. What do I mean? One who serves chooses to do so, one who truly serves chooses to do so without a payoff. It isn't about the outcome. It's for the other person. It's for their master. Now, sometimes, sadly, I think the impression we, and I'm speaking in the big general we of Christians again, the impression we give is that we will serve causes that grow our churches or lead to more conversions, that we serve causes that will increase our sense of political dominance or our sense of safety. We serve causes that will lift us up and make us more successful as leaders or, you know, build up our own lives. 
The Good Samaritan parable is shocking because there's no discernible gain for the one who serves. It's all cost. The cost of his time, the cost of his wages, the open-ended tab that allowed for unknown future cost. The payoff, the result, is utterly unclear or non-existent. What's not even mentioned is whether or not there was any spiritual impact to the wounded man. It's not even addressed. It's merely the care for his body. And that is at great cost. Years ago, when I worked in a men's shelter in Chicago, I was grappling with this because the entire center, I mean, this was an old auto parts dealership. Um, It had staff, volunteers. They had a whole housing development corporation. And I was grappling with something that I hadn't seen anybody come to Jesus in months. And I asked the pastor, I said, so what's the end game here? What's the goal? And this is what he said to me. And I, I, it was, he said, we keep them from dying. We keep them from dying. And I had to ask myself, is that enough? Does that justify a whole ministry center and all the time and the money, right? Just to keep people from dying. Here's another parable of Jesus. Remember, parables, they're stories that teach a principle. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when, we, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What's the difference between the two groups of people? Well, one gave costly service to others and the other did not. And Jesus said, the cost you spent on me. You spent it on me. Through them, you spent it on me. As we seek to serve people, there will be people 
who will be in dire straits, um, be people with mental illness, they won't likely be paying you back. And they often can't. Um, if we serve people in the community, like think about doing Cyclovia, there are people in the community who, who don't think Christianity is good or true. So if we go and serve them, they won't likely be paying us back or volunteering for us. They think what we do is terrible. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't. Why? Because Jesus came and emptied himself to serve you. Not because you could pay him back. Paul the Apostle, who Jesus came and served while he was killing Christians, said this in Philippians 2, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing he could grasp, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in, in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we've received. Costly servitude. That's what we've been changed by. And we're called to offer it. No matter what the result. Because we are doing it for the God that served us. We're doing it for Jesus. Through people. And when you see it this way, the cost problem evaporates. I think that's what my pastor in Chicago was trying to say. This evaporates because it's worship. Out of what God has done for us, we keep people alive because it's worship. And then no cost is too high. As Bono said, it all glorifies Jesus. Think about Mary who broke the alabaster flask of ointment and Judas Iscariot said, that's a waste of money. And Jesus, and Jesus said, no, it's not. She's worshiping me. When we serve others, we're worshiping him. The cost isn't a problem. And by the way, the good news of Jesus is most compelling when it's the least self-serving. Our friends in our community can sniff it out when we're looking for a payoff, whether it's converts with some kind of bait and switch, or we go like, hey, come in here, maybe you'll join us, right? Or we're trying to get attention for ourselves or political power or boot bolster our career or do something that makes us feel fulfilled. People can tell when it's about us. That's easy to recognize, right? It's not a witness of anything. It's just kind of ho-hum, run-of-the-mill Win, grow, make money, be happy. That's what everybody does. People can tell. But when it's beautifully surprising is when it's costly and sacrificial. Reverend Tony, who founded that ministry in Chicago, the way he started was he opened up uh, the building. They were given this, uh, this 
or purchased or whatever this old auto dealership and and there were a bunch of kids running around the property and he invited them in one day and he said hey what do you guys want in this building and they said basketball so he went out and he took god's money and he bought basketball hoops and painted a basketball court on the floor right now, when I was back there this past year, there's one of the kids from back then who's now in his 70s, still there telling that story of how Reverend Tony didn't start with what he wanted to do, but he said, what do you want? What do you guys think should be in here? Reverend Tony, I saw him. He couldn't play basketball. He stunk. <laughs> that wasn't for him. I'm okay. Yeah, thanks. Right? So, so that's why we don't have it here, right? Yeah. Kind of. But why is that so compelling? Because it echoes the greatest story ever told. When Reverend Tony got up in front of the church at other times and he declared that Jesus entered in, died in our place, rose again, ascended and returned, it was like a puzzle piece that fit. Oh, that's why Reverend Tony asks us what we need. That's why Reverend Tony spends his life saving lives, is because of Jesus, right? A community that learns to serve and expend great cost in order to take care of those who can never pay them back bears witness to the gospel, to the one who can handle the ultimate cost. Like the Good Samaritan, when Jesus was here, people found him unappealing. He wasn't the powerful leader we wanted. He healed sick and poor people. The disciples were a band of misfits, a band of people that nobody really wanted leading them anywhere. He spent his entire life bearing our burdens and bandaging our wounds. He expended every last breath to achieve our salvation. He took our beating. His clothes were stained in our blood. He paid the cost of the cross of Calvary, and he prays for us every single day. And we do nothing but cost him until he returns and completes what he started in us. So what does it mean to believe the gospel? It means to see what Jesus has done for you, which is what we remember in the broken bread. It's to receive his servant love, which is what we remember when we remember that the wine he poured out was pointing us to his blood that was shed. And then just like we come to this table and receive and then we walk away, we go and we do likewise. We are served and therefore we serve. And yes, we make disciples and give an account of the hope that we have. So that's the call for us tonight. See what Jesus has done for you, receive his love and go and do likewise. And we'll receive him. If you have faith, even just a little bit, you can receive what Jesus has done for you by faith and ask him to transform you. But count the cost. He's gonna ask you to serve. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to leave a two-minute space of silence. And that silent time is just time for you to reflect and pray yourself. Maybe there's something you need to ask Jesus about. Maybe you need to grapple with these things. Maybe you uh, aren't, aren't following Jesus, but, but you're thinking maybe you should. Um, perhaps you've had wrong motivations. Whatever, whatever you need, if it's coming to him just to confess that he is God and you want to bow to him and worship him, if it's to confess that you've sinned and need forgiveness, 
He's the safest place to bring your confession. He is willing at all times to heal and serve. That's his nature. And that's why he's able to call us to do the same. So I'm going to leave two minutes of silence after I pray, and then Mike's going to lead some songs, and, um, and I'll be handing out the work of Christ, which has been done for you at the table. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a servant king. Thank you for the great cost you have incurred to bring us near. We don't understand it. We have no idea how much it cost to bear our burdens, to forgive us, to be patient with us. You're so kind. May that kindness lead us to repentance. May we be shaped into your image and be a puzzle that makes sense to people so that when they see you crucified, risen, coming again as our confession, that they'll see it and it'll be a hopeful story, a hopeful picture that they believe in. As we confess to you and come before you, have mercy on us and then build our faith and encourage us. Send us out in the power of your good news. Lead us now as we pray.